This episode is brought to you by Ethical Electric, who makes it fast and easy to switch to green, renewable energy for your home or office. Visit ethicalelectric.com slash best for details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Climate Desk, The Black Agenda Report, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, On the Media, Next Gen Climate, The Green News Report, and Activism from 350.org. 2015 is on track to be the hottest year in recorded history. Scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recently released a report showing that July was the single warmest month on planet Earth in history. Nine of the ten hottest months since record-keeping began in 1880 have occurred since 2005. This news comes as scientists at Columbia University released a report which shows that global warming has worsened the California drought, now entering its fourth year. Meanwhile, this summer saw wildfires explode across the western United States, with Washington State breaking the record for acres burned this year. Uh, The state had the single largest wildfire on record. Uh, And some have attributed the surge of migrants from Syria to Europe to changing weather patterns. According to Time magazine, large swaths of Syria suffered an extreme drought from 2006 to 2011, which was exacerbated by climate change. That drought reportedly uh, led to increased poverty and relocation to urban areas. All this comes as time is running out for the diplomats who are trying to forge a meaningful climate change agreement ahead of the UN Climate Summit in Paris later this year. On Monday, French President Francois Hollande noted Paris talks could risk failure if countries do not make stronger commitments. He also warned that the ongoing migrant crisis could escalate to include people fleeing natural disasters if climate change isn't tackled properly. Yes, there are even risks that there could be a failure. All the contributions have not been made. We have hardly 60. The sometimes sensational statements are not often financial guarantees. In other words, financing is not flooding in with people's awareness. There needs to be a pre-decided agreement on the subject of financing so that heads of state and governments can return to Paris with the certitude that we will be able to reach a conclusion. If we do not reach a conclusion, I have evoked the situation of the refugees and the dispossessed. If we do not reach a conclusion, if no single substantial measure is put in place to assure this transition and adaption, then it will not be hundreds of thousands of refugees in the next 20 years that we will have to address, but millions. French President Francois Hollande said his country would focus over the next three months on ensuring there was $100 billion in place to tackle climate change by 2020. Meanwhile, the environmental group 350.org and the European Green Party recently launched the Divest for Paris Challenge, calling on institutions, individuals and governments to divest from fossil fuels ahead of the climate summit in Paris later this year. On Wednesday, the University of California announced that it has sold off more than 200 million dollars worth of investments in coal and tar sands companies. To talk about all of this, we're joined by Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org, author of a number of books, uh, including Earth and um, Making a Life on a Tough New Planet. He's speaking tonight at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with Naomi Klein and other social movement leaders from around the world. The event is called Off and On, the Climate Movement and Road Through Paris. Welcome to Democracy Now! What needs to be done right now? Um, why don't you start off with the University 
of California. This is breaking news. Well, it is, um, and it's kind of a shock, i, I got to say. We started this divestment movement, you remember, three years ago. And when we started, it was small. The first college to divest was Unity College up in Maine, whose endowment was, I think, under $10 million, oh, maybe well under $10 million. In the past two weeks, the California state legislature has divested CalPERS and CalSTRS, two of the biggest pension, two of the 20 biggest pension funds on earth. And then yesterday comes the news kind of out of the blue that the UC system, you know, uh, the iconic campuses at Berkeley and UCLA and Santa Barbara and Davis, uh, uh, beginning to divest at least from coal and tar sands oil. Their portfolio is not... $10 $10 million, it's $98 billion. Um, there's uh, a kind of just dramatic momentum behind this people's uprising on climate change. We've finally gotten it through our heads that unless we push hard, our leaders aren't going to do what needs doing. So now we're pushing. And in terms of the uh, impact on the, f- the fossil fuel industry, what's there? Because they inevitably have a fight back plan. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the fossil fuel industry is fighting and in many cases winning. I mean, they're extraordinarily powerful. Uh, they were able to gut climate legislation in the California Assembly yesterday. The oil industry kept Jerry Brown from uh, being able to pass some of his signature legislation. And the same around the world. But they're beginning to, we're beginning to fight them to a draw in place after place. You know, uh, I've talked with you two several times over the years about that, say, Keystone Pipeline that isn't built yet. Um, last week, uh, our colleagues in Australia uh, said that it was pretty clear now that the world's largest coal mine slated for Queensland isn't going to be built. Activists have been able to force every major bank on the planet to say they wouldn't fund it. So what do you make of last week's headlines? One, President Obama is the first sitting U.S. president to go to the Arctic. He used it as a moment to address the issue of Mm. climate change, to educate the United States and people around the world. And at the same time, he opens up the Arctic to drilling. This is the um, one step forward, one step sideways, one step back thing that we've seen so often. Look, uh, the president's rhetoric in Alaska was truly great. He really understood what was going on. And that's a big change. You'll remember that in the last presidential campaign, he didn't even mention climate change. It was too scary a topic. Now he's talking about it, and he's doing some things about it. The clean power plan is a useful thing. But but he's unable so far to break with the habit of giving the oil industry what it wants. And what it wanted this time was one of the stupidest things on earth. I mean, look at Shell Oil up in the Arctic. It watched as scientists said would happen as the Arctic melted from the increasing temperature on this planet. Instead of looking at that and saying, huh, maybe we should become an energy company and start putting up solar panels, Shell looked at that and said, the water's melted, that'll make it easier to drill. If there's a more irresponsible company on Earth, I don't know what it is, and it's a shame to see Barack Obama helping in that process.
everyone. This is Tim McDonald from Climate Desk. We had some huge climate change news come out of the White House this weekend, and I'm here to explain to you what you need to know about it. President Obama unveiling the single biggest step that any president has ever taken to address climate change. And this boils down to really tackling greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sector, the power sector. Coal-fired power plants are the single biggest source of carbon dioxide emissions that cause climate change in the whole country, even more than cars and trucks. But as of this weekend, there were no federal limits at all about how much carbon dioxide emissions could come from those plants. So what the president has done is to set for each state in the country a special target for how much they have to reduce their carbon emissions. Overall, these things are going to add up to about a 32% reduction by 2030. And the way that's going to happen is that a lot of states are going to have to close coal-fired power plants, use them less, maybe retrofit them um, with new technology to help clean them up. There's going to be a lot of construction of wind and solar and other clean energy sources. And states are also going to be really going after energy efficiency, so trying to get more bang from the buck. The other significant thing about this package is that it's the kind of main thing that the president is offering to the rest of the world for the big UN climate summit that's coming up in Paris later this year. So we have promised other countries that by 2027 we're going to have reduced uh, carbon emissions across the board in the U.S. by about 26 to 28 percent. And the plan that was just announced today is the biggest kind of piece of how we're going to keep that promise to the rest of the world. So this was a big step forward for the U.S. on climate change, but the battle isn't over yet. Even before the rules were released, we saw a lot of fierce opposition to this proposed plan from um, some Republican lawmakers, some power companies, coal companies. And so we can definitely expect to see, um, pretty much immediately after these rules come out, a series of legal challenges. Some experts think this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. You're going to see a lot of opposition to this um, before the rules are implemented. So the battle is far from over. In the meantime, I'm Tim McDonald. Stay tuned to me and to Climate Desk for more on this developing story. President Obama announced his plan last week to slash U.S. carbon emissions by 2030, mostly via EPA rules, which will effectively prohibit new coal-fired electric plants. This is unambiguously good news, especially from a president who once declared himself in favor of clean coal. The bad news is that the Obama administration could have done this in its first weeks in office, rather than half past its seventh year, and it does not begin to redeem Obama's climate change legacy. The bad news is that the U.S. still leads the world in water-polluting, earthquake-causing fracking, in taxpayer subsidies to the fracking industry, and in the export of fracking technologies, for which the Obama administration has been a tireless advocate. 
The bad news is that when the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the largest known gas and oil spill in history, occurred in 2010, the Obama administration actively colluded with oil companies to lie to the public, concealing the volume and the extent of the leak. President Obama had the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard ban civilian overflights of the spill area, and local police agencies bar civilian access to affected shorelines, apparently to prevent independent experts from assessing the extent of damage and the speed of which the poisonous discharge was settling to the seafloor. The Obama Justice Department even protected British Petroleum by declaring that the damage awards could only be assessed against BP's holding in the U.S. Gulf rather than against its global assets on six continents and oceans across the planet. But although the president's party controlled both houses of Congress for another six months, President Obama and his party sponsored not one piece of legislation, not one administrative rule to rein in the plundering activities of big oil. The bad news is that despite past disasters and future dangers, the Obama administration continues to issue new permits for drilling up and down the Atlantic and Gulf coasts and is even permitting deep water offshore fracking. What could possibly go wrong? The bad news is that the Obama administration, just like the Bush and Clinton ones before it, has continued the bipartisan American tradition of subverting and destroying international accords on climate change, giving the final coup de grace to the Kyoto Accords, and condemning hundreds of millions in Asia, Africa, and Oceania to suffer the ravages of climate change. The bad news is that the Obama administration's equivocation on the Keystone Pipeline seems transparently calculated to get his party through the 2016 election, after which it will almost certainly be approved whoever is elected. The Obama administration has even issued permits for drilling in the Arctic Ocean, accessible for the first time in hundreds of thousands of years due to the melting of polar ice caps. Actual leadership on climate change would set a near-term goal of 80 to 90 percent of U.S. energy needs to be met by renewables like wind and solar, an end to fracking on land and sea, and the banning of offshore drilling, especially in the Arctic. Climate change leadership would be applauding the citizen activists who are delaying the departure of Shell's mammoth Arctic drilling rig from the port of Seattle. Climate change leadership would have the U.S. look more like Germany, which, although it's as far north as Canada, derives most of its energy from wind and solar power and other renewables. At this point, climate change leadership would mean popularizing the case for leaving the coal in the hole, the gas beneath the grass, and the oil in the soil, while we fund and find other ways to power our agriculture, our cities, and our lives. But none of that is part of the Obama legacy on climate change, which is pretty words, but ugly actions. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon.
One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered. If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. That link is also in the sidebar of my website. Or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. Yesterday, we talked about how G7 leaders agreed to stop using fossil fuels altogether by the year 2100 in a completely non-binding sort of, we'd like to do this if nothing gets in the way before then type of statement. And Lewis and I complained yesterday that it wasn't really fast enough. 85 years, it did very little. We're really talking about G7 leaders saying, if all goes in a completely convenient way and we don't run out of fossil fuels uh, before this, we would like our great-great-grandchildren to stop using fossil fuels. And a, a very valid reaction to our complaints would have been, well, hold on, David, what evidence do you have or what specific action plan can you present that suggests this could be done faster than 85 years from now? It just so happens, Lewis, as I alluded to yesterday, uh, that civil and environmental engineering professor Mark Jacobson, along with some of his colleagues at a number of other schools, outlined very specifically for the first time how all 50 states could convert to 100% clean renewable energy by 2050, just 35 years from now. 35 years versus 85 years, that's quite a difference. In the amount of uh, this exponential growth we are we have on this planet yeah that is uh, it's a huge difference in, in, interestingly enough this plan would not require the development of any new technologies it would be achieved by pairing existing technology with changes to infrastructure and yes some modifications to our energy consumption habits so for each sector they analyze the current amount and source of fuel consumed from coal oil, gas, nuclear, renewables, and calculated the fuel demands if all fuel usage was replaced with electricity. So this is this is a challenging step. Admittedly, it assumes every car on the road becomes electric, that homes and industry convert to fully electrified heating and cooling systems. That would be step one. Not a small step, but not an impossible step. The next step involves, okay, now that we've switched over to an electrified system for all energy consumption, how do we power that electric grid with renewable and or clean energy sources? So this includes wind, solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, and tiny amounts of tidal and wave. Let's remember, of course, hydroelectric, not considered renewable in the sense that we we can see depletion of uh, bodies of water that would provide that type of power 
but certainly clean. So that would be sort of the caveat, Lewis, to the extent that hydroelectric is involved. We want to remember that and not just lump hydroelectric in with 100% clean and renewable. No, that's fair. And also, depending on where you live, it just may not be a viable option. I mean, your, your choices are pretty limited when it comes to that. So these engineers analyzed each state's sun exposure, how many south-facing non-shaded rooftops could accommodate solar panels. They looked at wind maps. They determined whether local offshore wind turbines were an option. Also, geothermal was explored, which was reasonable for about 13 states based on the cost. And the plan calls for almost no new hydroelectric dams, which would be, as I mentioned, the least optimal solution for energy needs. And the report lays out individual roadmaps customized to each of the 50 states to achieve an 80% transition by the year 2030 and full conversion by 2050. Obvious questions that have surfaced in light of this report. Number one, would this mean our entire country is covered in solar panels. No, it would not. This entire plan calls for no more than 0.5% of any state's land to be covered in solar panels or wind turbines. If we add to this, Lewis, that there will be improvements done to existing technology, and certainly in the next 10 to 20 years, there will be new technology that will allow for a transition to clean and renewable energy, that 2050 date could even be moved up slightly as we integrate new technology into this plan. This is specific, this is actionable, and it is precise. This is what we need to be paying attention to, rather than the defense spending, and certainly rather than uh, uh, who who other people are marrying or what gender someone is presenting as. This is huge, but uh, it sounds like a great plan to me. I'd love to put it into action, but is there a will to do this? Is there a will by uh, individual states, by the federal government? Uh, it just seems like a monumental undertaking, and I'd love to see it happen, but... I just don't see it happening. Well, there damn well should be the will to do it, right? We have a d diminishing and increasingly antiquated infrastructure in this country. We have new technologies that could drastically improve both the economy and the environment. And we have the opportunity to create entire new industries of jobs at a time when we worry that automation is going to destroy jobs. This should be one of the top priorities for, for national security, for the environment, for the economy. And instead, we get focused on, you know, cutting taxes for the rich and uh, replacing all the bombs that we'll likely never use because they could destroy the planet ten times over. And whether Caitlyn Jenner should be allowed to go into which bathroom at Planet Fitness, I mean, you know, it's, it's depressing. What you just said probably sounds pretty logical to most of our audience, but you say it to 80% of Republicans and they'll just come call you a communist. Uh, so, yo, good luck, I say to you, David Pack. Energy company advertisements aside, I think we all understand that coal is kind of bad for your health. Well, it turns out it's also radioactive, which is cool. And coal ash, the byproduct you get when you burn coal, is even more toxic than that. 
A new study is actually showing how widespread the potential danger is. Radioactive elements are present in both coal and coal ash from all three major coal basins, the Illinois, Appalachian, and Power River basins. The levels of radioactivity in the coal ash were also up to five times higher than levels in normal soil and up to ten times higher than in the parent coal itself. And the radioactivity is, of course, that's the interesting new news. It hadn't previously been measured in this way. But you don't even need to go to the radioactivity to see how dangerous coal ash and coal actually is. Along with toxic contaminants like arsenic, selenium, and mercury, coal contains naturally occurring radioactive elements like uranium and thorium, which, when they decay, form chemical byproducts like radium. Toxic contaminants have been of the most concern to those monitoring coal ash disposal sites, Disposal sites aren't monitored for radioactivity. Another reason that these sorts of studies are so important. It might be that there are regulations to look into some sorts of known contaminants or toxins in things like coal and coal ash. But there's other sorts of potential dangers that we may not even know are currently there. And it turns out that when you burn the coal and you get the coal ash, it concentrates the potential contaminants, both of the toxic and radioactive varieties, causing two potential problems either here or around the world. And the first has to do with the fact that a lot of this concentrated uh, byproduct can become airborne easily. The particles are so small. And U.S. power plants have smokestack scrubbers that keep fly ash particles out of the air. But for places like China, where residents are exposed to high levels of coal ash in the air, the radioactivity of the coal ash could pose a threat to public health because you can actually breathe in the particles that then become lodged inside of your body, continuing to produce radioactive byproducts. But here in the United States, we have our own problems as well. The ash is often dumped into ditches, sometimes unlined, where it can easily come into direct contact with the environment. Under the EPA's forthcoming regulations, all new coal ash pits must be lined, but existing pits only need to be cleaned up when they've been shown to be actively polluting the environment. And access to those is, is unlikely in a lot of cases. And while companies must monitor levels of contaminants in coal ash ponds and nearby groundwater, they aren't required to monitor radioactivity. So, again... This is why this is so important, is that they are being put in these unlined pits in a lot of cases. They're going to continue to be for a very long time, and that then can uh, seep into the, uh, the outlying areas. But really, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too hard. Why should we care so much about coal ash? I mean, after all, it's only the second largest form of waste generated in the United States. And we find out that it is actually radioactive. And look, at a time when one party's presidential nominees are almost unanimous in their desire to destroy the EPA, the federal body providing the limited regulations on coal ash that we currently have, and when Republicans in the House back in July passed a bill that would allow coal companies to dispose of coal ash by dumping it into water resources, I think it's clear that at this point what we need is some radioactivism. I'm waking up to ash and dust, wipe my brow
It may not surprise you to learn that ExxonMobil, formerly Exxon, formerly Esso, directed millions of dollars between 1989 and 2007 to dozens of front groups that worked to seed public doubt about the atmospheric impact of burning fossil fuels. And it may not surprise you to learn that Exxon and other companies helped found the group called Global Climate Coalition in 1989, a group that lobbied against emission restrictions until 2002. You've heard that language of denial and doubt from them and other Exxon-funded groups, too. They're pushing an alarmist agenda that says that humans are the major cause of global warming. I'm not quite so sure what's so wrong with the environment. I think the environment is fine, considering all the wealth and the air is clean, the water is clean, everything is basically okay. But this may be a bit of a shock. For a decade in the 70s and 80s, Exxon was at the forefront of scientific research on climate change, and its own scientists were sounding alarms. There was no questioning that the atmospheric carbon dioxide was increasing, that atmospheric carbon dioxide was going to change the climate in some fashion. The question was how fast, how much, and, and what kind of, of uh, impacts would it have. That was Edward Garvey, a former Exxon climate researcher, in a video produced by Frontline with the Pulitzer Prize-winning website in Inside Climate News. This week, that website launched a series documenting Exxon's white hat scientific research and then its sudden shift toward trivializing the growing scientific consensus on climate change. Neela Banerjee, one of the reporters who produced the series for Inside Climate News, describes her aha moment. One day on a listserv, I got a transcript of a congressional hearing from 1979 that was about climate change. And I, I thought, oh, you know, isn't this surprising? So just on a lark, maybe because I was procrastinating or something, I looked up Exxon to see if anybody from Exxon was there. And then I found the name of a man. His name was Henry Shaw. Shaw was leading the company's early efforts into carbon dioxide research. Before learning about him, Inside Climate News believed that the earliest Exxon had looked at the effects of CO2 was in the 1980s. And that was the sort of thread that started to unravel this. As I started to Google Henry, I found a study that had been done about Exxon outfitting a super tanker with equipment to measure carbon dioxide concentrations in the ocean and in the atmosphere along the super tanker's route from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. And the paper came out in 1982, but the work had been done in the late 70s. We started to pull together names, start to look at places where documents might be, archives and so on, and that's how it all came together. How far back does the company's interest in CO2 buildup go? There is a scientist named Jim Black who made a report to Exxon's management committee in July 1977. And the management committee is the top leadership of the company. And he told them about the prevailing science at the time about carbon dioxide, that scientists think it's mainly from the combustion of fossil fuels, and if it keeps up at this rate, it will lead to a warming of the planet, and that could have very grave consequences for human society, things like drought and floods and, and so on. To put that in perspective, it wasn't until 1988 that James Hansen of NASA alerted the world in testimony before Congress about the seriousness of this issue. So, Exxon. Right. You know, we were stunned. There's this public Exxon that we know from 1990 onward, sort of skeptical about, you know, how certain the science is, calling for delays. And yet, the documents that we've seen and the, and the people we've talked to Describe a company where the approach to carbon dioxide and climate change was very neutral, very measured. 
when one reads Jim Black's text, and you can do it on our website because we've uploaded that document to our first story, it's like any other scientist of the day. And while the company didn't at the time issue press releases and write in its annual reports about its gathering suspicions and fears about CO2, it also wasn't operating in secret. Its scientists were publishing peer-reviewed papers publicly. Right. I think a lot of people want to make this appear to be an energy industry parallel of what happened in the tobacco industry. I'm not sure how far that parallel goes because Exxon, at the time that this research was being done, did not suppress any of this. That was actually part of their strategy. They understood that farther down the road, if the science was accurate, which you know they thought it, it would be, that there would be limits placed on emissions from fossil fuels. So their strategy at that time was that we want to have a say in what those limits look like. We want to be taken seriously. And the best way to do that is to do peer-reviewed, irreproachable science. And so they backed conferences on greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. They published in peer-reviewed papers. They, in fact, ended up shelving a major natural gas project, which is still mothballed today because the natural gas was mixed in with a lot of carbon dioxide and they couldn't find a way to get rid of the carbon dioxide and they weren't going to vent it into the atmosphere. This project off of uh, the coast of Indonesia came at a time when they actually were concerned that supplies were running dangerously low and they still opted not to pursue the Indonesian project on CO2 grounds. It's hard to imagine we're speaking of a major oil company. I know. And then something changed. The documentary evidence and interviews we have so far only extend to 1986. And part of the reason is that Exxon was involved in major layoffs through the 80s because the oil price sank. And a lot of the scientists who were involved in climate research either left or were let go by the mid-80s. And then in 1989, the Global Climate Coalition is formed by fossil fuel companies, and Exxon is one of the leading figures in this effort. So something happened between 86 and 89, and we don't have that information. What we can surmise, though, is that there was a change in management, and the management through the 70s and mid-80s had been looking at alternatives to crude oil. Some of them were carbon-based, like tar sands, but some of them were not. And then you had management come in that were more focused on the core business and thought that Exxon should stick to oil. That was people like Lee Raymond, who went on to become chairman of Exxon. And Lee Raymond notoriously argued against the Kyoto Protocol and prevailed with the argument that well, he said, quote, let's agree there's a lot we really don't know about how climate will change in the 21st century and beyond, which I guess is nominally true. There is a lot we don't know. But by the time he uttered those words, there was absolute scientific consensus that the temperatures were going up, that ice was melting, that sea levels were rising and so forth. Yes. What Exxon did from the late... 80s onward was that they hammered away at the uncertainty around various aspects of climate science. And they did not partake in arguments that a lot of deniers use, such as, you know, it's natural cycles or sunspots or anything like that. But instead, they just kept saying, you know, the science is too uncertain for us to make enormous and possibly very expensive shifts in the economy. So the uncertainty became this break on climate action. 
The interesting thing is that in the late 70s, early 80s, Exxon scientists saw uncertainty as perfectly normal in evolving science and as an opportunity for research. They actually rebutted climate models that showed that climate change would not be as bad as the prevailing models predicted. And then Exxon basically decided to take an entirely different path. And that's that's why we call the series The Road Not Taken. If they had stayed on that road, things might be a bit different now, but they didn't. You went to ExxonMobil. And concerning that original expedition on a super tanker, uh, the spokesman, Richard Kyle, told you that that expedition had nothing to do with trying to figure out the absorption rates of carbon dioxide in the ocean. You know, people who participated in the project and then the documents said otherwise. We tried to get him to square that, and they declined to do so. I mean, Exxon's approach now is basically not to talk to us. They will not answer questions going forward, though we told them the doors open anytime you want to talk. Neil, thank you very much. You're welcome. Neela Banerjee is one of the reporters on the Exxon story for the Pulitzer Prize winning Inside Climate News. It's not as if this is unknown. The truth's consistently assured. That global sea levels are rising. But governments are left compromising. Informed by your false logic and cherry picks, still hear the sound of skeptics. Hi, I'm Jenny Slate, and today we're going to look at some of the truly bonkers things being said by climate change deniers in our government. There are a lot of shenanigans going on with the data. If there's one thing we know about NASA, it's that they really love shenanigans. Those guys love it. <laughs> love those shenanigans. Little known fact, NASA actually stands for the National Aeronautics and Shenanigans Administration. <laughs> Houston, we have some shenanigans. I couldn't help myself. Scientists, like the rest of us humans, can have beliefs. But that doesn't make it science. The difference is that the rest of us humans have beliefs, like pizza is a cool food and old ladies with purple hair have great stories. Scientists have beliefs based on facts and scientific observations, and 97% of the scientists who study climate believe that global climate change is real and caused by humans. That's us. We did it. It's bad. The new fad thing that's going through America and around the world, it's called global warming. Totally, totally, it's such a fad. Like health food or troll dolls. Let's just all agree to forget about climate change and hope it goes away. I had a great troll doll collection. I had one with a bikini. Wind is God's way of balancing heat. Wind is the way you shift heat from areas where it's hotter to areas where it's cooler. That's what wind is. Wouldn't it be ironic if in the interest of global warming, we mandated massive switches to energy, which is a finite resource, which slows the wind down, which causes the temperature to go up? You know what I think? I think it would take a lot of wind to move all the hot air in that statement. 
Wind power is a safe, efficient energy source. It is not a finite resource, and it will not slow down the wind. All voodoo, nonsense, hokum, a hoax. That response to the pressing issue of global climate change might be considered short-sighted. Foolish, blind, myopic. That's right, I know how to use a thesaurus as well. Let's address global climate change with tenacity, courage, strength of purpose, and moxie. Oh, I love that word. Moxie. Moxie. I also like saying scram, if someone could put that in to something. You can just say it to it like a raccoon in your trash. Scram! <laughs> Get out of the trash. There's no question there's some global warming, but I'm not sure what it means. A lot of this is condescending elitism. Well, huh. If someone told you that you were about to get hit by a bus, it might come off sounding condescending. Maybe, sure, depending on how they spoke to you. But also, it might be nice not to get hit by a bus, just because of how that would feel on your body. <laughs> global climate change is the bus. And I suggest we move our buns. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. We have just learned that the liberals have taken over the Canadian government, throwing out the Conservative Party and Prime Minister Stephen Harper. This could have a huge effect on the Keystone XL pipeline and the Energy East pipeline, both controversial and set to ship dirty tar sands oil from Alberta all over the place. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen now what will happen with a new liberal government in charge up in Canada. Yeah, we should hopefully have more on that in our next episode, but it very possibly could put an end to the nearly 10-year pro-oil agenda of the Harper administration. Yes, underline the word possibly, given that uh, just days ago the co-chair for the Justin Trudeau campaign, he's the head of the liberals, had to resign because of his ties to TransCanada and the oil industry. So uh, a lot of questions, but uh, an encouraging sign, perhaps, at least that Harper is gone. All right, what other earth-shaking news do you have for us today, Desi Doyen? <laughs> well, accountability may be coming for Exxon. We've been telling you about the blockbuster investigation revealing that Exxon executives knew about the dangers of burning fossil fuels in causing global warming as early as 1977, but Exxon copied the tobacco industry and spent millions of dollars funding front groups to deceive the public and policymakers about the scientific evidence. Now, Congressman Ted Lieu and Mark Desaulnier, both
both Democrats from California have asked the U.S. Justice Department to investigate Exxon in the same way the Justice Department investigated and successfully convicted Big Tobacco on racketeering charges 10 years ago for conspiring to deceive the public. Congressman Liu explained on the broadcast that it isn't just that Exxon remained silent on what they knew. They were taking affirmative steps both in what they said, who they funded, and actions they took to push back against climate change science. And keep in mind, they internally took actions to take advantage of global warming. So this is beyond hypocrisy. I'm not even sure what to call it. What the congressman was referring to there was the fact that not only did Exxon know, but they tried to take advantage of the fact that the Arctic would be melting and, hey, makes it easier to drill up there in the Arctic without all of that ice. Speaking of the Arctic, another setback for big oil in the Arctic. On Friday, the Interior Department announced that it has halted all auctions of leases to drill for oil and gas in the U.S. waters off the coast of Alaska due to the lack of interest from the oil industry due to slumping global oil prices. Interior Department also announced it will not renew or extend any existing leases in the Arctic, and that includes leases held by Shell Oil, which abandoned its efforts in the Arctic last month after getting disappointing results. And after getting approval from the Obama administration to do it in the first place, I am glad they have flip-flopped now, so to speak. So, good for them, about time. Meanwhile, a big shift underway in the auto industry. After automaker Volkswagen was caught red-handed cheating on U.S. emissions tests, Tesla CEO Elon Musk suggested this may signal the end of the internal combustion engine. What the uh, Volkswagen is really showing is that we've reached the limit of what's possible uh, with diesel and gasoline. It appears Volkswagen agrees. VW executives have announced, quote, the future is electric, and in a statement they say they will now focus their product range and core technologies on building long-range all-electric and plug-in hybrid cars across all of their brands. And it's not just Volkswagen. Swedish automaker Volvo is also going electric, saying, quote, we believe the time has come for electric vehicles. Volvo announced it will offer plug-ins or hybrid versions of every model it sells within four years. And that comes on the heels of BMW saying that every single car they make will be electric in some form or another over the next 10 years. Plus, Japanese automaker Toyota says it will make virtually all gasoline engines from its product line extinct by 2050, focusing on hybrids and electrics and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Maybe I You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Global Climate March. The United Nations is preparing for climate negotiations in Paris this December, and predictably, 350.org has been active ahead of time. Their campaign, The Road Through Paris, is so named because the pressure will need to continue beyond the summit. As 350.org's campaign page says, no matter what happens at the summit, this will continue to be true. Politicians don't lead movements. People do. 
2015 is on track to be the hottest year in recorded history, which will make this the third record-breaking year in a row. The UN Secretary General says he's on board, telling the press that we need to, quote, accelerate investments in clean energy and spur a global low-carbon transformation well before the end of the century, consistent with a below 2 degrees Celsius pathway, unquote. 350.org is looking to hold them to that and more with specific milestones. Their goal is to get world leaders to make a deal that's, quote, in line with the imperatives of science and justice. They're demanding that 80% of fossil fuels stay in the ground and financing for a transition to 100% renewable energy by 2050. These are ambitious goals and everyone has to get involved in a visible show of support to put the necessary weight behind the demands. Next up is the Global Climate March, November 28th and 29th. Information on the specifics in your area can be found at 350.org slash global hyphen climate hyphen march. It's the weekend before the talks start and while the biggest action is happening in Paris itself, people are participating around the globe. 350.org optimistically calls this a possible turning point, but only if we push for it. Visit 350.org and join up with the Global Climate March happening near you or access resources to start your own. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If seizing the moment on climate matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Global Climate March via social media so that others in your network can join in. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. As we move on to uh, the dramatic news of what has taken place in this country over the last week, a once-in-a-millennium downpour, that's what South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is calling the torrential rainfall that's triggered massive flooding over the weekend. At least eight people have died in the Carolinas. This is South Carolina Governor Haley. When you think about... What we're sitting in right now, um, we are at a thousand-year level um, of rain in parts of the low country. What does that mean? We haven't seen this level of rain in the low country in a thousand years. That's how big this is. That's how um, South Carolina is, what South Carolina is dealing with right now. The Congaree River is at its highest level since 1936. According to the National Weather Service, the storm had dumped more than 20 inches of rain in parts of central South Carolina since Friday. Researchers say extreme weather events are becoming more frequent with the effects of climate change. The year 2015 is on track to be the hottest in recorded history. Scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recently released a report showing July was the single warmest month in history. And nine of the ten hottest months since record keeping began in 1880 have 
have occurred since 2005. Well, we're going to spend the remainder of the hour bringing you part two of our conversation with Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis on the remarkable new film that reimagines the vast challenge of climate change. The film is called This Changes Everything. It's based on Naomi Klein's global bestseller, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And yes, we dare to say what the meteorologists over the weekend, all the news reports 24 hours a day that are certainly dealing with this once in a thousand year flood in South Carolina, don't mention the words climate change. I began by asking Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis about extreme weather events like Hurricane Sandy, which hit three years ago this month. This is a clip from their film, followed by Avi Lewis and Naomi Klein. But a strange thing happened as the fossil fuel economy spread over the world. The sacrifice zone got bigger and bigger. It started with the places considered the middle of nowhere. And then one day, I watched it come to the place that sees itself as the center of everywhere. This was the moment when Sandy struck, 90 mile an hour winds slicing through New York streets. Three quarters of a million people have been forced to evacuate. All those years, we imagined that we'd freed ourselves from nature's bonds, that we were the boss. There was a part of the story we couldn't yet see. Our machines were filling the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. Could it be that we're not the masters after all? That we are just guests here and that we can get evicted for bad behavior. What we just came out of this clip on Superstorm Sandy, what it teaches us now. Well, you know, it's, 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 we were here in New York, uh, a week after the film, of, after the storm. Obviously, you guys lived right through it. I watched your broadcast in those days and, it, and, and it was staggering. Um, and I think now that, that we're, everyone gets triggered with post-traumatic stress about, about these terrible, terrible climate-driven disasters. Um, and I think there are fewer and fewer parts of the world where people don't hear the warnings and relive the last disaster because this is, this is a crisis of the now. And I think New Yorkers really are in a state of returning, you know, having flashbacks to that. We need to harness that fear and that trauma and actually turn it into healing and positive change. Blockadia, the grassroots movements around the world that are standing up to the fossil fuel companies. Talk about this global phenomenon that the corporate media rarely covers, let alone links. Well, it's, it's been an extraordinary few years for the climate justice movement. I mean, to be here in New York uh, in the fall is very emotional for us because we were on the streets with almost half a million people in the People's Climate March. And, and what that made that moment uh, so extraordinary was the diversity and the connecting the dots feeling of the movement these days. You have frontline 
frontline communities, whether on the front lines of fossil fuel extraction uh, or on the front lines of pollution. And, you know, marginalized communities, we know that the, the impacts of climate change and industrialization are racialized. They're, they're people uh, of, of econo- without economic means are much more vulnerable. And you see these communities coming together and connecting causes and naming the system at the heart of it. It's happening around the world. And what's really exciting nowadays, I think, is that we're starting to see not just the no, to, the, to these damaging projects and to this logic of extraction, extraction of wealth as well as extraction of resources, but we're seeing more and more of the yes. So look at the divestment movement, which has exploded in three years. $1.2 trillion in capital 4. now. 6. How much? $4.6 trillion. $4.6 trillion in capital, which is committed to divesting from fossil fuel investments. But it's not just the no to the fossil fuel uh, stocks and bonds. It's the yes in terms of redirecting and reinvesting that money in community cooperatives, in, in, in renewable energy. And we're seeing this, and we see it throughout the film, the communities on, front, on the front lines Explain of the no. Explain those communities that you cover. Well, so we went, um, so for instance, we went to, to, to northern Greece in the middle of this uh, horrific economic assault you know, of the austerity being imposed on Greece, which is being used as an excuse to open up all these new dirty projects. They're talking about drilling for oil in the Aegean and Ionian Sea, some of the most storied oceans uh, uh, in in history. And there's this massive gold mine uh, proposed uh, and starting to be developed by a Canadian company uh, in a very beautiful uh, area of northern Greece. And there's this extraordinary community resistance to it. People in a fairly conservative part of the world who are not activists, who are not lefties, who start to see what's being done in the name of this economic model and and and, and the excuses being... very much in with your previous book, um, The Shock yeah. Doctor and the Rise of Disaster Capitalism, Naomi. Well, I mean, the truth is I, I see this book uh, and this project as a sequel uh, to, to, to um, The Shock Doctrine because, uh, you know, that book begins and ends with Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, that we are, what we are seeing is what climate change looks like when you have an economic system that uh, systematically uh, fuels inequality, ever wider inequality, often along racial lines. And we know what it looks like. It looks like Katrina. Right. I mean, if you had money and you know resources, you were able to get out of the city, call your insurance company. Uh, but if you needed a functional state, you were out of luck. First of all, because the levees were neglected. Second of all, because there was no evacuation. There was, you know, uh, the, FEMA couldn't find the Superdome for five days. I mean, you know the story. Um, but then what happened next, right? The, the, the disaster capitalism complex, as I called it in that book, descends on the city to privatize the school system, uh, to get rid of public housing and replace it with condominiums, uh, you know, to decide not to open charity hospital that serves the city's poor. Um, so you know, this book is an attempt to think about how do we respond to crisis collectively in a way that reduces inequality, that builds a fair society, that is democratic instead of this incredibly anti-democratic process that I describe in the shock doctrine. Look, you know, climate change is the biggest shock of all. It hits us with shock after shock after shock, whether it's a hurricane, um, you know, whether it's the endless drought in California. And, you know, Amy... I was really, you know, it, it takes a lot to shock me because I've been immersed in this stuff for a long time. But I didn't realize that a third of California's firefighters are prison inmates being paid uh, two dollars uh, um, an hour to fight California's. Yeah, and it, it, for Cal Fire, it's apparently half of the firefighters. So this is incredibly dangerous work. They're being paid two dollars an hour. At, or, and if they're not 
actively fighting fires. Some of them are being paid less than $2 a day. And it turns out that there are forces in California that are resisting prison reform measures that would lower California's prison population because they're worried about the impact of their firefighter supply. This is what it looks like to try to deal with climate change within an economic context of what around the world is called neoliberalism, relentless austerity, which, you know, one of the impacts of relentless austerity is increased incarceration, through, you know, locking up and locking out the people who are losing within this economic system. So that's why we're calling for looking at the root causes of, what's, of, of what is driving climate change and, and also using climate change as a catalyst to build a fair economic system. And what we show in the film is that people are doing this very organically as they're fighting the fossil fuel projects, they're fighting for energy democracy, community-controlled renewable energy that keeps resources in the community so they can pay for services. Hey, Jay, I'm calling about the voter suppression episode. I have a call to action. Too many laws have been changed to the detriment of the poor and disenfranchised. Until we vote out people controlling the government, we cannot fix the system. In order to do that, we must show that we won't sit still and allow them to further skew the polls. We must step up and help. We can contact agencies and community groups to locate people affected by these laws. We can help order birth certificates, drive people to the DMV, drive people to the county clerk to register, start GoFundMe projects to cover the costs of helping. Democrats have huge get-out-the-vote campaigns, but first we need to help those who can't vote. Talk to the county or state party leaders to help organize volunteers and funds. Now is the time to start. It is too late for this year's elections. But 2016 is huge for progressives, and we all know that we succeed when more turn out to vote. We as progressives need to change the system and let the Republicans know that we won't put up with their bullshit. Thanks, Jay. Stay awesome. Hi, Jay. This is Chris from New Hampshire. I'm responding to the happiness discussion and, in particular, your call for experts in mental health. I'm not an expert in mental health, um, but I think um, my experience is worth contributing in response to your um, discussion with uh, Katie regarding mental health issues and uh, how they dovetail with uh, the philosophy of Stoicism. A bit about myself. I uh, came from a comfortably upper-middle-class family and um, have lived a comfortably upper-middle-class lifestyle pretty much my whole life, currently in my late 40s. And um, I've had depression pretty much my whole life. It afflicted me right from my early childhood. Uh, I got particularly bad in high school. What really changed in high school is that uh, for all my depression prior to that, I generally felt more or less in control of my life as a child. Um, I generally felt that if I had problems, I could fix them. But uh, the 
fraught nature of adolescence and the interpersonal um, relationships that come with it um, in high school changed that thinking and sort of sent me into a deeper uh, spiral than I had prior to that. In spite of my depression, I've had some modest successes. Um, I uh, have a great family, a very supportive wife, uh, two fantastic kids, one of whom is a fan of your show. And uh, But I regret um, have, uh, waiting so long to get treated. Uh, you know, for, for so many years, for decades, um, I was not fully present for my family. You know, I would I would do things for them. I would I would play with my kids. I would I would um, you know share moments with my wife. But um, I I never really felt fully present in the spiritual sense, and uh, I regret that very much. A few years ago, my depression got so bad that I uh, you know I was on the train commuting, and um, I just um, not knowing what else to do, I just sort of texted my wife. And said, "I'm just, I'm just so sad. What, what can we do?" And within minutes, she texted back the uh, time and place and date of an appointment that she made for me with a psychiatrist. And it was that which led to me finally getting diagnosed and medicated. This being, this being in my early 40s. And it, you, sh- you need to imagine what it would be like to have a relationship with somebody who is chronically unhappy with you, who loves you, who supports you, who cares for you, but who is who never feels like she's getting the support that she needs from you. If you could take a pill that would make not yourself but that person better, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That was my experience. When I started taking my depression medication, I did not notice a difference. I felt pretty much the same because it's, you know, it's not just, you know, constant sadness when you're depressed and it's not like constant happiness when you're not depressed. It's just your ability to muster the will to get up and do the things that need to be done to borrow a phrase from Garrison Keillor. After getting medicated, without even my noticing it, I just became a more present and effective person. And the first evidence that I had of this improvement was seeing it reflected in my wife. She was just so much. She was just a much happier person after I got my uh, got my treatment. And the treatment started to take hold. I don't think that this is a repudiation of stoicism. I would go so far as to say that I endorse stoicism. I, I, th- I think it's a fine thing, um, and I, th- I think that most people could benefit from it. I just think that it's not the whole story. Before you can achieve healthy cognition and healthy uh, modes of interacting and healthy, healthy modes of uh, having fulfilling relationships, you first have to have healthy hardware. You know, the you know the the, the software can't do its job if if it's running on corrupted hardware so uh, this is just my way of saying um, you know if you if you have a mental illness or suspect that you have a mental illness uh, you know don't wait you know m- maybe it's not biological um, may, you know maybe you need someone to talk to or maybe you need cognitive behavioral therapy maybe you need um, more structural support from your government as Katie suggests and I fully agree but uh, don't, you know, don't um, 
let uh, pride or a false sense of uh, you know boots uh, you know pulling yourself by own bootstraps or you know, that kind of uh, Horatio Alger type uh, philosophy prevent you from um, seeking medical aid. Um, it uh, it helped me tremendously, and I, it's helped other members of my family, and um, I uh, wholeheartedly recommend it. Not for everybody, but you know. Don't write it off if you think you might need it and you haven't talked to your doctor yet. You know, follow up with that. Love the show. Keep being awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusek for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the Voice Memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So having just listened to Chris's voicemail, I have to say I love his analogy of hardware versus software sort of the predispositions we have, the way our mind works, you know, the way it's wired, people often say. And then on top of that, sort of the software of what gets built of, you know, how we sort of decide to think about the world and how we, you know, attempt to perceive things. But if the hardware underneath is really sort of screwed up, either, you know, with any variety of mental illness or, you know, as he was describing, you know, specifically depression, uh, you know, nothing you build on top of that is going to work quite the way it's supposed to, you know, if at all. So, yeah, I love that analogy, but it also reminds me of another theory that scientists have about how happiness works. And so, first of all, to describe, like, the basis for nearly all of our cognitive reasoning is based on relativity, you know, things being relative one to another. And so with happiness, it's the, you know, it's the grass is always greener syndrome that we're all familiar with. So uh, when shopping, for instance, it's hard to know if an item is overpriced until we see a second similar item's price in order to compare the relative prices to each other. And, you know, without being able to make comparisons like that, we have a really, really difficult time making judgments. And as a side note, Marketers know this about human psychology and use it against us when they set up items in their displays in the stores and they set all their prices and they do it specifically in a way to make people buy more and more expensive stuff. But that's just an aside. Now, when judging our personal prosperity, for instance, you know, it is absolutely possible. I'm sure you've heard stories of, you know, a person who earns $5 million a year, but they feel poor because their friends are making $10 million a year. And then there's the famous uh, H.L. Mencken quote, uh, you know, where he defines a wealthy man as one who earns $100 a year more than his wife's sister's husband. Because that's how we function. We, we just compare ourselves to those around us and judge our own you know, relative worth based on that. Now, I say all of that just to get back around to say that it's not just our perceptions that are relative. Scientists think that our predisposition to happiness may also be on a somewhat relative sliding scale. So if there's a happiness scale from 1 to 10 where 1 is you know as miserable as it's possible for a person to be and 10 is the happiest a person could possibly be, then everyone has their own range within that. So some people might range from three to seven, say, 
when they are as upset as they ever get, they're only at a three, you know, in, in the, in the scale of human happiness, they never get down to a two or a one. And when they're as happy as they ever get, they get to a seven, but they never get all the way up to like a nine or a 10. And then other people may range from a five to a nine. You know, they just have this predisposition to happiness and they never really get that sad at all. And it's a normal thing for them to be very, very happy, you know. So we are able to influence our level of happiness, but there are still constraints in all of our hardware. So mental illness and chronic pain are two of the biggest, most obvious hardware constraints. You know, sometimes these things can be managed with drugs, as we heard in Chris's voicemail today, you know, but there's the less obvious influences that all of our hardware has on us. And so, you know, maybe you don't have full-blown depression or, you know, any other kind kind of definable mental illness, but you may still be predisposed to a relatively low range on the happiness scale. You may fluctuate between two and six. And, you know, frankly, the bad news is that if this theory that the scientists have is correct, then that range may just be your lot in life. And you'll rarely, if ever, feel the happiness of a nine or a 10. Um, But the good news is that all of the various strategies there are to increase happiness, like you know, getting more exercise or getting out in nature or meditating or practicing appreciation techniques, uh, you know, for what you already have, et cetera, et cetera. All of those types of things, they can still work, and by using them, you may keep your average happiness up around five, for instance, instead of down at three. You may not feel like maintaining a happiness level of 5 out of 10 is all that great, but first of all, it beats the hell out of 3, and secondly, it may just be one of those cases where, you know, we just have to do the best with what we've got, and if what we have is sort of a low to moderate happiness range, uh, it's, you know, we're just predisposed to be in that range, then there's no use in beating ourselves up comparing how we feel to those lucky people who are always, you know, they just seem to be on cloud nine and, you know, they're up at, you know, a happiness level of eight without even trying. I mean, that's not a good or helpful comparison and not just because it might make you feel worse by comparing yourself, but it's not an apples to apples comparison. So thanks again to Chris for calling in and telling his story. You know, if you have a story of your own you want to share or any thoughts on this or anything else, uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Wonder what we're doing Can't see